0: You know, a lot of people think that baking is exacting, and I, I challenge that it's not really. A good home cook or baker, like a grandmother, made pies by 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 hand. Did they measure? No, mm-hmm. they did it by feel, touch.
1: Those are the wise words of encouragement of Chef Jim Dodge, who is a very famous pastry chef. He has taught some of your favorite chefs from around the world, too. You will enjoy this kitchen chat today where Chef Jim Dodge will give us some fun stories about Julia Child, as well as some fantastic tips for the home baker. Hello, dear foodie friends, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. I'm your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I'm so excited you're joining me in Santa Fe, New Mexico, out on a beautiful plaza here at the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And what an honor it is to be sitting outside at a table with Jim Dodge, who has been such a incredible culinarian and educator and has been in the business for quite a while and is going to share some of his insight, his um, baking tips, as well as how things have changed within the industry. So welcome to Kitchen Chat, Jim.
0: Thank you. Wonderful to be here.
1: When it's so peaceful, listeners, you'll hear the birds in the background. It has just been such a fun conference. What is your favorite thing about Santa Fe so far?
0: Well, definitely the food and and the architecture second. I just love this architecture. Yes,
1: and we're here at International Association of Culinary Professionals. And as many of my foodie friends know, IACP changed my life when I joined about six years ago, just opened the door to Kitchen Chat and having these fun podcasts on this incredible culinary journey. Jim, how long have you been a member of IACP?
0: Shortly after it founded, so I think that was 78. Yeah, so about about that time.
1: Wow. Yeah. So you have seen some changes in the industry.
0: Tremendous changes, yes, Absolutely. Yes
1: so tell us how did your culinary journey begin?
0: Well I very I was very fortunate because I uh, grew up in um, the mountains of uh, in Lakes region of New Hampshire which is a four season resort with incredible beauty and my <clears throat> family owned a very exclusive small resort um, which, it had a wonderful clientele, very, very diverse um, people from all over the world and um, But the food was very important uh because people would frequently stay for weeks or a month and and might have three meals a day there and the menu changed every day so that uh it wasn't there weren't big menus but um very interesting. And my father was extremely knowledgeable about food, and I'm the seventh generation to be in the hotel innkeeper business in New England. So it was our tradition in our family that you were trained to be in that business, and we all started our apprenticeship when we were 10. And the first job that my twin brother and I did was to weed the flower gardens. And there were a lot of flower gardens and and everything was organic at that time. And uh so, yeah, I still remember it wasn't just you had to push your hand deep into the soil and grab the root, the whole root, pull it out, and slap it against the stone to make sure all the dirt was off. And uh, we sort of liked that part. And then eventually we got to work in the kitchen, which was a lot of fun, we loved washing dishes with a hose sprayer, you know, and occasionally spray each other. And, uh, and then we started working in the bakery with the pastry chef, who was like a grandmother to us. And, um, and I remember going there in the winter particularly. It was down below the main kitchen, and the warmth of that baking oven in a you know, cold, snowy New Hampshire it just sort of encircled you. And the comfort of it. And that, you know, again, Lillian Drake, our pastry chef, uh, she was like a grandmother to us. So the memories of that, I think, instilled something very special.
1: So, what is your favorite taste memory from childhood?
0: Gee, that's, you know, the first thing I remember because I'm talking about um, Lillian Drake, uh, she was mainlining us. cookies (laughs) um and she'd start giggling because she'd say oh we um i I can't give you any more your dad's going to get upset but i would say the fruit cobblers and pies and stuff because what's unique about new hampshire it's such a tough growing season and it's such a one season so short and some years you might not have great free fruit or things like that um I think strawberry shortcake made with field strawberries, which was the first fruit of the season, when the in the hayfields, when the before the grass got too high, were the tiny little um, uh, field strawberries, and you had to pick them on the stem because they were so lush with juice. If you if you grab the fruit itself, it would just crush, uh, and the flavor was just amazing. And they were only available two weeks, and then you had whittier.
1: Wow. So have you, through your culinary journey, incorporated any of those taste memories and ingredients from New Hampshire into your own dishes?
0: Yes. And, you know, I was very fortunate because when I was in my early 20s, I was able to do a two-year Swiss apprenticeship. And I realized that Switzerland is very similar to New Hampshire, Uh, great. At that time, particularly uh, great dairy and uh, Jersey, Jersey cows, brown cows, like, you know, the best for for milk and cream and stuff like that. And then they had the seasonal fruit. Um, so I sort of took when after the apprenticeship, I sort of merged the two and used those fine European standards in pastry, <coughs> incorporated those wonderful textures with things like a great banana cream pie. And so I I sort of reinvented it, and I went through this process of assessing what makes it Mm great. Well, first of all, using really good cream that's not ultra-pasteurized, no additives, Mm -hmm. because it has more flavor and it has more texture. And those additives are bitter, and that's why people add sugar and vanilla to whipped cream, because they're masking this taste if you just whip regular cream. You don't have to add any sugar. It has a natural sweetness. It's full of flavor. So that's the topping. The bananas I used, I didn't cut them thin. Mm -hmm. cut them thicker because you associate, when you're eating pastry particularly, texture with fruit. Um, That's part of the taste experience as well. So I want a little, and there's something wonderful about bananas uh, when they're the uh, that texture, they're so smooth. and um, So I had, instead of using two bananas or one, I used five. Mm-hmm. And I didn't use any I- imitation flavor or anything like that. And I used a good creme patissiere, which is a good pastry cream or vanilla pudding mm-hmm. with a little butter at the end folded in and fresh eggs and good milk and stuff like that. So you had a lot of flavor and just enough vanilla to enhance the banana banana taste. And then a crust, the most important, where a lot of people fail, that crust has to be baked golden brown. And you want it with butter because it has the most taste. And so it's nutty and you have that crisp texture. So the fork goes through first the cream, which is luscious, then the banana, the texture, and then and then chops through the crust. It's crisp. And you need the contrast of all those different textures, and particularly the crust. And the crust has a, when it's golden brown, it's nutty. It's full of flavor. If it's underbaked, it's flat. It distracts. It has an odd taste because it's raw flour and it's gummy. So it distracts from everything else. Um, So that balance uh, and let's you know, a little less sugar is always better. So the, so all the good ingredients, the, the cream, the dairy, and the, the fruit comes forward.
1: But how do you have that perfect golden crust? I'm a bit challenged on the baking side. What is the secret to the success for that?
0: First of all, to have a good recipe mm-hmm. that uh, has enough fat in it so that it rolls easily. Um, and usually, you know, it, my two favorite fats for that are butter, and then in the winter, I will use um, really good lard or something like that. I'm not opposed to um, shortening because it's just neutral in taste, you know I mean, um, but uh the trick is to um, don't overhandle the dough once you make it so good recipe, good formulas, easy to roll don't if you you can use a lot of flour. Brush it off. Mm-hmm. Get a good, and when you're done, work quickly when you're rolling it out. And then um, when you line the pan, then you need to let it rest. Mm-hmm. And then you, um, for a pre-baked crust, what I do is two metal pans that are about the same. And I put, I line the pan, I refrigerate it with the dough. I take it out after preheating my oven, so about half. 20 minutes, put an identical pan on top and turn it upside down. Put that on a sheet pan and bake it. And you're better off baking at a lower temperature because it bakes. Most people will bake it. They have probably bake that at 375. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's too high. And a lower temperature, um, I like to bake at 3 twenty five it's slower it bakes more evenly, less likelihood for it to burn number one and and everything becomes equally browned so then what you do is you turn it and it it colors first, cooks on the outside first, and then it um uh and you so you'll see that, and then what you do is you turn it upside down, you take it out of the oven, and you see if you can lift the the second pan off. If it doesn't come off, that means it's not done baking. Leave it. Don't force it. Put it back in. Bake another five minutes. Once it comes off, then you put it back in, right side up, just the one layer with the crust, and you finish baking it another five minutes or something like that. And it will be evenly golden brown. So lower temperature is is the trick.
1: This is great advice out there for you, bakers. And uh, I'd love to hear too, Jim. What were the milestones in your culinary career so far?
0: Well, <clears throat> I think first of all, having that family training, working in every department of that hotel. Mm-hmm. My father bought from local growers. The hippies were growing organic um, vegetables, and he, uh, you know, he, they grew things for him, uh, and then. The Swiss apprenticeship, definitely, it was. Uh, and then when I moved moved back, it was t- sort of tough to get a job, because mm-hmm. pastry was a dying art. But moving to San Francisco in 1978, when I was 24, getting the job as ex- the executive pastry chef at the Stanford Court yes. was yeah. pinnacle. That was that was uh, an amazing opportunity. California's unique because of the growing season and the range of what's available, and particularly San Francisco, you know there's good dairy there mm-hmm. there and because of the ethnic diversity there's a wide range of things that are grown yes. and I had never seen really fresh figs, and they were available. The only thing we can't get is tart cherries but mm-hmm. um but so that and then I had the opportunity to buy good ingredients. Mm-hmm. And to explore and learn. And uh, and then the second thing, I think, teaching. Because, you know, I was very withdrawn. You know, I start work at 4 in the morning. Pastry chefs tend to be quiet. And um, <clears throat> that brought me out of my shell. And it made me realize what people needed to know mm. by having those novices. So I became a better chef and a better manager. Um, and, um, that started actually, uh, my commitment to teaching, which is now over 40 years and then I, and then the next, you know, starting to write for, starting to get awards and write for newspapers and writing my first book. That was an experience. I had trend, tremendous support, um, um, uh, from different friends, other chefs and restaurateurs, and food writers.
1: And I remember running into you at uh, the very first Julia Child Foundation Awards, where Jacques Pepin was being honored. And can you share with us? Do, you seem to have a friendship with Chef Jacques Pepin and some other wonderful um, change makers within the culinary.
0: Yes, that's true. Because you know the thing about the Stanford Court during that period of the 70s and the 80s, um, until it was sold in 88 and became a part of a chain, it was when, if you were a food person, you stayed at the Stanford Court. Uh, And so people like Jacques would come, and he'd come down in the morning, and he'd have breakfast with us at the chef's table there, and then uh, we'd talk and uh, share little tips and things like that. And when Julia and Paul came for the first time that was really memorable and what's we have a long connection because my family bought one of their resorts from the same woman that Paul and Julia bought their house in Cambridge from. And so when they came, the first thing that impressed me is it took them 45 minutes to get through the kitchen to the pastry kitchen. And I'm like, what's going on here? She, they stopped and asked every person What did you do? What are you doing? Why do you do that? You know, the the genuine concern for everyone, the generosity of time, was overwhelming, and uh, and that started a long friendship uh, as well as with with Jacques, and uh, so I've been very fortunate to be involved with the Julia Child Foundation, and then as a uh, the jury chair for the awards, and um, and then helping you know Jacques with his foundation that he's just established and those are such great mentors i mean Mm -hmm. that's another pinnacle of my life to to see success like that and and they never changed and they know the importance of giving back Mm -hmm.
1: yes so do you have any favorite julia child memories i never had the blessing of being able to meet her and I love hearing from those who knew her share some special stories and insights.
0: Um, well when she was in uh, uh, later in her life and when I was you know working for Bon Appetit Management and I was running the Getty Center uh, food and beverage operation I'd go up and visit her in uh, Casa Madrona in Santa Barbara and we she had a condo but the kitchen was really more of a pantry you know it's really to warm things up make breakfast and stuff like she couldn't entertain so she'd take her friends out to dinner and we were at a local steakhouse and she was cutting the steak and it was very tough you know it's just perhaps the animal was stressed when it was slaughtered or you know and um So I said to her, would you like me to have that send that back? She paused and put her hand on my arm. She said, oh, no, Jim, that would upset the chef too much. And I thought, my God, what consideration. She knew the power of the effect of that, and she did not want a negative situation. And then she just asked for a doggy bag. She didn't have a dog, you know, but she didn't want them to be concerned that she had not finished it. Uh, and that kind of consideration, the deep consideration, it's just, re, you know, reiterated what what I was taught. Um, and probably the funniest story was, uh, again, uh, you know, I would pick her up and and <clears throat> we'd go for lunch and she'd decide where you're we going to go. And, and uh, so I get her in my red truck, which she loved. It was had running boards. It was up high. She like was so curious she could see everything. And I think she loved that it was red, too. And So I said, where are we going for lunch? She said, Costco. I paused, and I said, Costco? All I could think of, what are we going to go and sample all the, eat the samples? So I said, what are we going to eat at Costco? And she kind of paused, you know, sighed and said, Jim, don't you know they have the best hot dogs? I said, no, I didn't know that. So <laughs> we, we went to Costco and had hot dogs and uh, Cokes. No Diet Cokes, but Cokes. <laughs> and then people would walk by and they'd look and they'd say, hey, this, I think that's Julia. And they go, oh, no, it couldn't be. Julia wouldn't be eating hot dogs at <laughs> Costco. <laughs> it was very funny.
1: What a special memory. Oh, my goodness. And with IACP, because we're celebrating its 41st year has IACP helped you navigate through the culinary world and has it helped open doors for you during this time
0: without question I mean I it's really contributed to the success of my career I mean I you know <clears throat> meeting publishers editors um and agents and uh, other cookbook authors other chefs other restaurateurs the networking is phenomenal and one of the reasons i come come back i attend every year is to see people and friends that i don't get to see regularly and, and from around the world you know I, I ran into a friend from panama the other day and i hadn't seen her in uh, maybe 6 years uh so it, it's 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 a great organization and you know, I, I, for me, the, the, it's, they're great programming, but the programming is, a lot of the programming is based on people starting out, mm-hmm. uh, as it should be. Yes. As it should yeah. be. So, uh, but there's still some great uh, t- uh, sessions I'm going to attend, that's for sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, great. Well, anything next professionally for you? What's going on in your kitchen?
0: Well, you know, I still teach when i can at boston university i just celebrated 30 years there and and then um king arthur flower uh in vermont and upstate in um washington state and and then the artisan baking center in Petaluma, which just opened uh i think 6 months ago so uh i still have my hand in that mm-hmm. and then i th- you know i try to educate people about what makes a good dessert it's uh, and then my own work within bon appetit management company which is a wonderful restaurant management company you know stimulating our chefs by providing culinary education because we're different than our competitors where we don't have standard restaurant uh, menus in our restaurants uh, every cafe every ca- is treated like independent restaurants the chefs create Uh, menus for their market and so but we need to stimulate them so i come up with like we recently did a persian training Mm. and just you know it's uh, stimulating for them and expands their knowledge and their palates
1: wow well i always like to end the show with three top tips for the home chef so i guess in this case for the home baker what are three tips that have really helped you through the years
0: well, you know, a lot of people think that baking is exacting, and I I challenge that it's not really. A good home cook or baker like a grandmother or rather, you know, made pies by 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 hand. Did they measure no? They did it by feel, touch and and uh so pay attention to that. Teach yourself when you make successful don't feel it. Don't overhandle the dough. I think the same thing with cakes. Um, if you're making a sponge cake, again, bake it at a lower temperature, um, at like 325. Uh, the cake will rise more evenly. It won't dome. So when you cut it in half, it's you don't have to cut off a top layer and discard it or whatever. And you'll get a more moist cake. And And to test a cake, you touch the center when it's almost done a sponge cake and when it just springs back and it you can hear it it sounds like a damp sponge you know it goes like that that means that the air bubbles are, are firm enough cooked enough it's done take it out and then it let it cool not flat but on a rack um, so that it cools evenly if you put it on a flat surface what happens, it creates a vacuum, and all the moisture goes to the bottom. And two things could happen. The cake could collapse because it's not cooling evenly, or it makes the bottom of the cake soggy. And it compromises the texture of the cake.
1: All great tips from Chef Jim Dodge. Where can our foodie friends find you?
0: I do have a website. It's very easy, chefjimdodge.com.
1: Oh, thank you so much for being on Kitchen Chat.
0: My pleasure. What a treat.
1: Oh, Thank you. And thank you, dear foodie friends. Please visit me in my kitchen, kitchenchat.info. And always remember to take a moment and savor the day.